This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by the ABIC Health Check. This is a brand new free online tool for evaluating your internal comms activities. Now you've probably seen, you've probably used these online diagnostic tools before. Let's be honest, they can be a little lightweight, rather rudimentary, not always worth the effort of completing. We wanted the ABIC Health Check to be genuinely useful. So we designed it to be thorough. How does it work? The tool takes you through a series of questions in six categories. Insight and understanding, strategy and planning, channels, content, measurement, and professional development. Now, my advice is don't rush through these questions. Make time to sit down with a drink of your choice and work through your answers. You'll need a good 15 minutes. At the end, once you've entered your details, your bespoke report will land automatically in your inbox. This will give you an assessment of where you are today in terms of your internal comms activities. Plus, the report will be packed with insight, advice, and practical hints and tips for what to do next, whether you're ahead of the game or just starting out. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to abcomabcowm.co.uk forward slash health. Get a free, fresh expert assessment of your work and take your internal comms to the next level. That website address again, abcomabcowm.co.uk forward slash health. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Every fortnight, I sit down with leading lights from the world of communication, business and academia to tease out the smart thinking, fresh ideas and new tactics for improving workplace communication. One of the unexpected consequences of hosting this show is that I am now regularly pitched potential guests by PR firms. Now, 90% of the time, these guests are wholly inappropriate for the show. But when I heard about the work of Jackie Stavros and Sherry Torres, I was immediately intrigued. They are the co-authors of Conversations Worth Having, using appreciative inquiry to fuel productive and meaningful engagement. Now, if you're anything like me, work can sometimes feel like you know, one long conversation. We're either in conversation with ourselves, colleagues, stakeholders, or our audiences. So if there is a way to make these conversations more productive, perhaps even more enjoyable, uplifting, I am all in. I was also intrigued to discover whether appreciative inquiry can stop us from having those circular conversations that go nowhere where we go round and round a problem and fail to actually address it head on. Now, Jackie and Sherry have been researching, writing, consulting, speaking on appreciative inquiry since 1996. Sherry is the CEO of the consulting firm Collaborative by Design, and Jackie is a professor at the Lawrence Technological University in Michigan. 
Jackie is also an advisor at the David L. Cooper Ryder Centre for Appreciative Inquiry. David Cooper Ryder being the original co-creator of Appreciative Inquiry. Now, in this conversation, Sherry and Jackie share advice on how to frame and flip a problem, how to ask a generative question that reveals fresh information and insight, and how our conversations actually affect the executive functions of our brains, our ability to reason, be imaginative and solve problems. And finally, listen out for a story about a therapist and the one foot by one foot square he has behind his desk. I absolutely loved that story. Anyway, without further ado, here are Jackie and Sherry. So Sherry and Jackie, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. I'm super excited about this conversation. Yeah, so are we, Katie. Thank you so much for inviting us. To set the scene for listeners, I thought it might be useful to discuss what led you to the study of conversation. Can you share a little bit about your background, your experience? So in 2000 and I don't know, early 2000s, Jackie and I met and we discovered we had something in common. Both of us wanted to bring Appreciative Inquiry, which was a organizational change approach that we had been using, we wanted to bring it to the general public because both of us felt like this paradigm of talking about what you want and engaging people in conversations that move you towards the future you desire would be really valuable. And so in 2005, we co-authored a book called Dynamic Relationships And 10 years later, we thought, let's do a second edition on this. And we realized that our thinking about how to talk about appreciative inquiry as a way of being and everyday engagement had completely shifted, transformed. We couldn't kind of revise that book. We had to rewrite a different one. Ah. And over time conversations worth having actually emerged. We didn't go in realizing it, that it was all about our conversations, but trying to make the practice so simple, uh, we, we really did realize it's all about our conversations. You know, Sherry's tracking 100% on the story. And I would just say um, it became crystal clear for me once we moved from the first edition to the second edition, it was all about our conversations. And we just started realizing, oh my goodness, how much we are in conversations. If you think about how much of your awake hours, you're having a conversation in your mind or with someone else. And the best way to have these conversations is with um, what we've learned was appreciative inquiry, that appreciative tone, appreciative tone and positive direction. And that's how we drew, we were literally drawn in, invited into this. And it just dawned on us that it is all about our conversations. It's so interesting for me because it seems that in some ways, you know, having the right kind of conversations could be a mechanism for potentially changing workplaces, even, dare I say, the world around us. And one might argue that could well be a good endeavor at the moment, but that's hiding in plain sight 
I think you use the phrase almost like it's the water we're swimming in. But it seems so basic to talk about conversations. I'd just be interested in your reflection on why conversations are actually so Mm -hmm. important. I'll I'll throw something um, out there that I thought about on my drive into work this morning. I said, imagine what the world might be like if our world leaders who are coming together had conversations worth having mm. and co-creating and coexisting in a peaceful in a peaceful world and that was um my thinking this morning before coming on to this conversation with you and Sherry mm, that's a wonderful thought if only that could happen Let's start with the nature of our conversations. So again, until I'd read the book, I always thought of my conversations in a rather sort of basic rudimentary way as either being, well, that was a good conversation. That was a bad conversation. That was uplifting. (laughs) That was absolutely the opposite. There is a four box model in your book, very early on in your book, I think it's chapter two, that actually sets out the types of conversation, four types of conversation that we're probably having day to day. And I thought that might be a useful place to start, almost kind of decoding, getting people to understand what conversation am I in right now? Can you just explain what that four box model looks like? Sure. There are two dimensions to our conversation. So if you think of a vertical line, At the top of that vertical line, we put the word appreciative. And by appreciative, we mean adding value or valuing what is. So conversations that tend towards the appreciative are conversations that add value, value people, value situations. At the other end of that is depreciative conversations, which devalue people and situations. And then if you Imagine a horizontal line going across. On one side are statements and on the other questions. So we're always somewhere in those four quadrants. And that horizontal line actually creates a a marker that the conversations below that line are depreciative. They're either statement-based and depreciative or they're inquiry-based and depreciative. And the conversations above are either statement-based or inquiry-based. And if you think of the kinds of conversations you have that you would say are below the line, conversations where you feel devalued or your words and language are devaluing others, those are clearly not conversations worth having. And anything you want to talk about below the line, unless you're just bent on criticizing and 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 venting, which we all are sometimes guilty. (laughs) But if you're not bent on doing that, it doesn't matter what the situation is. Even dealing with tough situations, crises, or needing to give critical feedback, you can do so from above the line. And so that's the book is all about how do you stay above the line in your conversations so that you can engage with people in ways that actually have everyone in the conversation moving towards what you want and feeling included and valued. It's it's interesting because I think at work, we often get into the mode of trying to identify the problem, dissect the problem. We even talk about root cause analysis. You know, let's dive deep and really find (laughs) out how this problem is manifesting, what's causing it. Appreciative inquiry it still solves problems, but it does that in 
a slightly different way. And you've talked about these generative questions, but I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about why appreciative inquiry works so well and and maybe give some examples of the types of questions you would be asking when faced with a problem. You'd be asking, rather than you always do this, why do you always do it? It never works for me. How come it works for you? A different kind of a different kind of question. <laughs> So, uh, so, as, so answering your question, look at appreciative inquiry that it doesn't ignore the problem. It approaches the problem from a different way. And so the two practices we talk about often in the book are um, generative questions and positive framing. Let's take a step back at, at what is appreciative inquiry. So appreciative inquiry is that you are intentionally going to go discover the best of what was, discover the best of what is and discover what is possible. And, you know, you can go to the Appreciative Inquiry Commons, and it's a global portal, and you can go deep and wide into um, Appreciative Inquiry. And, it, and if you think about a work as a manager, a colleague, imagine going to work, approaching a problem with starting with discovering what is what is going on right here, What's what is the best with our people and teams. And that's what appreciative inquiry is about, is no matter how wrong or bad, there is something going right. Yes. And that's a place that we start from. I suppose also those questions about focusing on what is going right or what would make it go right or when it has gone right in the past, what was happening that isn't happening now broadens the viewpoint, doesn't it? It's their expansive questions that create new knowledge rather than, oh, for example, a blame game, which says, you know, whose fault is this? I, I guess that's part of the, the shift as well. And you, you actually used some of the terms that we use to describe what a generative question does, is all of us come with our, a worldview and a set of biases, and we're looking through the lens of our experiences and the way we see and understand the world, our belief systems, um, including whether we're hydrated enough or somebody just yelled at us. And the idea with generative questions is to broaden the view, kind of widen the what we see um, and, and what we are understanding. And so a generative question, first and foremost, can make the invisible visible. Like, what am I assuming? Where am I? What's the other person assuming? Uh, what do they know that I don't know that would be important for me? Um, and then generative questions also create shared understanding. How do you see it? How do I see it? Um, what, are we, what are we trying to achieve? What's our common goal? And then you, you also mentioned generating new knowledge. You know, how did you do this at the place you worked beforehand? Maybe we can bring some of that in. Or you even mentioned this never works for me. How do you do, why does it work for you? We could easily turn that into a, you know, what is it that you do? Tell me about a time when, when you did this, because it always seems to work for you. What conditions make that possible? What are you doing that I could learn? Mm. Um, so I get new knowledge. And then, and then of course, generating possibilities, um, disrupting the current state of, of things so that we can, you know, broaden the possibilities for what we might do in the future. As you're talking there, Sherry, it makes me think that the mindset of your personal mindset going into a conversation is so important because how often do we go into a conversation wanting to make our point, 
or wanting to <laughs> convince the other side, wanting to, like, I've got five yes. minutes and I want to tell you this thing and I'm going to be polite for the first 30 seconds and then I'm going to get straight into telling you what I think. Whereas what you're describing is a, is a mindset shift where we go into a conversation in, without a pure curiosity, we are driven by our curiosity to ask questions where we actually are quite excited by the fact we don't know the answer. And that excitement and that curiosity keeps driving more questions. Would that be a fair analysis? Absolutely, Katie. And your your curiosity will naturally have you asking generative questions, which you're doing a great job so far. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't mean you go in without an idea of what you want or or even something you're wanting to advocate for, but you don't hold on to it so tightly. Um, I had a friend of mine who was a therapist and he made a one foot by one foot square behind his desk. And before every client came in, he would stand in that square and for one minute, close his eyes and remind himself, this is all I know. This is all I know. So, so that he wouldn't go in thinking he had the answers and instead going in with curiosity about, you know, what, what does this person know that can be the answer for themselves? Wow. Oh, my, you've just blown my mind with that. That is so clever. <laughs> that is so clever. And and we live in a world, and I, I was going to come back to this at the end, this question, but I just can't not mention it now. We live in a world where we, we talk about polarized societies. And for me, what I always think about when I hear that phrase is someone being really certain that they're right. I wonder whether that's a very intelligent position to hold. And actually, what we should really be doing is always hoping that we're going to uncover something new that's going to jolt us slightly out of our very confident, certain position. You, you know, almost kind of welcome it in a way. This is what I believe, but hey, you know, maybe there's something else out there and I'm, I, I'm open to it. Absolutely. It's a, it is a really, it's a valuable question, I think, to be asking. So, right, let's talk about techniques, how we can make this real so we can impart to listeners some sort of tactical advice. So you have a three-step process, name it, flip it, frame it. Would that be correct? Can you talk us through those steps and how, you know, how we can use those in everyday conversations to make our conversations more, more meaningful and worth having? Sure. So, so you've just described what positive framing is, which is one of the two practices. And think of um, think of positive framing. We're trying to connect you and I. So, when you name it, you name you name the problem. When you flip it, you just ask for the positive opposite. And then when you frame it, you need to keep going. And I would ask you, Katie, that if the positive opposite was true, what would be going on for us? What would really be be happening? And, you know, one of our favorite stories and actually how we kick off the book is about um, Alicia and she is in charge. She's in a medical center and lots of people have experienced this problem in industry that you're in. And her problem was low patient satisfaction scores. I work in a university. We have low student satisfaction scores at time. And Alicia went further. Um, at first, she was blaming and naming and the nurses and everybody was in this defense mode because we were all focused on the problem, low patient satisfaction scores. So when she flipped it to the positive opposite, it was 
Well, we want high patient satisfaction scores. Okay, let's keep going. If the positive opposite is true, what's going on in this medical center? What is going on in our hospital setting? Well, patients are delighted with their care and service. And so she asked these nurse managers to go out and to come back at the next meeting with stories that um, patients were delighted with their care. And that really caused um, the energy, I would say, almost a positive contagion going around in this hospital that um, what were examples of quality care and who was providing the care and how were they providing the care. And so they began to share stories and realized that there was a lot of great care going on. And that's what the search and the quest was for, was what makes this a great hospital. Um, and remember, positive framing draws people into the conversations and inspires engagement. And people begin to talk about what else is possible in high-quality care. Also, I mean, it just strikes me that that is a nicer conversation to be in as well, isn't it? <laughs> and I know, you know, nicer is not very technical, but um, people are drawn into conversations that are positive and slightly hold back and want to get out of. It's only natural conversations about where things are going wrong. So imagining a state where all our patients are happier, uh, I imagine that just brings out, you know, more positivity in general our brains are wired. Will you tell me about the neuroscience behind this? You have a whole section in your book now about the neuroscience, but I just wonder if you could sort of share some of that with us in terms of what the neuroscience is now talking about in terms of appreciative inquiry and why it works. Sure. Um, and it's for those people who are skeptical or so far as you've been listening, you're kind of thinking, oh, this is nice and it's kind of warm and fluffy. It's actually hard science. Um, and if, you, if you're listening, I invite you right now just to take 20 seconds and recall an, either a negative conversation or a conversation that you've been in where you were really focused on the problem or the negative. It was a conversation below the line. Bring that to mind. And then check in with your body. Notice what's happening. And if you were like most people, when you check into that conversation, your muscles get tense. You might feel a pit in your stomach. Your breathing will get sh more shallow. If you're wearing a smart watch, you might look down and notice your blood pressure went up, your heart rate went up. Our conversations actually have a neurophysiological effect on us, they impact our nervous system, and anytime there's a th even a modest threat to our system, it changes our biochemistry. And the more threatened we feel like if we are the person who is being criticized, our brains don't really know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger and a threat to the ego. And yes. so we immediately go into a fight-or-flight response. And you might say, well, that's all well and good. But why is that a problem? And the reason it's a problem is because uh, what our brains do is they channel more oxygen and nutrients to our muscles and those parts of our body that will help to keep us safe. And they take it away from the prefrontal lobe, the neocortex, the executive functions, emotional intelligence, creativity, all of that goes out the window. And so if we want people in our organizations 
to really be able to bring their full potential to solving really challenging, complex problems, putting it in a way that gives them access to creativity and connection, Mm. um, critical thinking is important. So again, if you're listening, think of the last time you were in a great conversation and maybe at work around creating possibilities Mm. and then check in with your body. And what you'll discover is there's this relaxation response and energy comes up and you suddenly become more, you know, creative and you stop thinking about me and you start thinking about we, your field of vision broadens. And so the conversations we have aren't inconsequential. They, in fact, are in, in they impact our our health, our relationships and our potential to be successful. So it's. It's not only nice, it's really <laughs> vital to use this approach. <laughs> the scientific evidence behind the niceness. This is good yes. to know. There's a reason it feels nice. Yeah. Yes. Let's imagine I'm an internal communications manager. And deep down, I believe my company values are really just posters on the wall. This is a common problem with lots of organizations. So, you know, we say it, but we don't actually do it. We don't, we, you know, we don't deliver that kind of behavior day in, day out. In fact, maybe where I work, people's behavior seems almost in direct violation of our values. That actually can be, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, going on as well. So to help me as that internal comms manager better understand and solve this problem, and this is putting you on the spot, ladies, I do apologise for that, but what kinds of generative questions might I ask both employees and leaders to get under the skin of that problem and solve it? So I would say, so Katie, if, if you're the internal communication manager, I would probably want to have just a conversation with you first and to really understand why do you think there's a problem? I mean, I, so I don't want to ignore ignore the problem. And I would want to say, you know, why do you, Katie, believe there's a problem and it's just posters on the wall? And I would get a feel for that. And so just the conversation that you and I are having together, then I would ask a generative question of um, mm-hmm. how do you live the values? What values are important to you? And I would want to just be really curious about this, Katie. And then I would say, all right, should we have a conversation with our team? And then you could, and you and I might get really excited and say yes, and and we could bring in the flip and we could name it, um, we don't live our values. What's the positive opposite? We live our values. Okay, so if we live our values, what does is, what is our team, our culture look like? Well, this is a great place to work. And then we can get into generative questions to ask with our team. And then we could spread this through the organization and really have a, a very, what we'd call a strategic conversation of what do values mean? The importance of values. What are our values? How do we live our values? Knowing that it's key to our culture and well-being. Hmm. You asked something up front, which I thought, oh, that's, I'm not sure I've ever done that, which is to turn round to the person who's made the diagnosis and say exactly what you've just said. But before we get even get into the problem, a positive question, how do you see the values? How do you live the values? Which one of those values really matters to you? And immediately get the person you're talking to to connect with the values on quite a personal level 
I think is quite powerful in itself, actually, just as you say, to frame the whole of the conversation going forward. And I also think that it's the kind of thing, it doesn't matter at what level of the organization you're, you are at, you can always ask that question of how can we better live our values? And if we were living our values, how might it impact productivity, performance, teamwork, a sense of belonging, retention? Those could be the kinds of questions that leadership then you know, if we could tie our values, ask questions that tie our values to the bottom line things that leadership cares about, um, they'll mm. take an interest as well. I've heard you say when a team or organization really embraces appreciative inquiry, it permeates people's language. You know, the language changes. You already talk, talked about conversations above the line and below the line. And you've heard people say we need to name it. And I thought as you were saying that, actually, how often do we think about, there's a phrase, isn't there, the elephant in the room. Mm. Am I thinking this in the right way, that sometimes we do actually need to identify, say out loud what the problem is? When you're saying name it, have you actually seen teams kind of embrace this and it changes the way they actually talk to each other in a way? That's, no, that's the way you know they've, got, they've truly got it and understood it. Yes. And, and yeah, what you, what you just said was exactly what we have heard back from people is, you know, and if a team is kind of spinning around the problem and, and they're not, they're not clear, they're just kind of spinning and somebody goes, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's, let's name what this problem is and ask questions so that we can get clear on what it is. And what people have told us is just that simple process. Um, it's like taking a time out and stepping up to the, the next level up and getting a view um, from on top of it. So it's not about the people. It's about what's the issue? Ah, what is it that we want? What's the positive opposite? And what, what do we really want to be talking about? And it completely changes the dynamic. Have you seen situations where it actually takes a, a degree of bravery to name it? <laughs> Do you think there's some difficult conversations that people are just too fearful in certain cultures, maybe, to actually say it straight? And there's this skirting around the issue. Have you have you seen that? Have you come across that? About about a week ago, so we have this Monday Kickstarters and where we bring people all over the world together for 30 minutes and somebody can bring in an issue. And a woman brought in an issue. The problem was her employee was demanding an apology from her. And she said, the goal of this person demanding an apology from me. And when before we flip to the positive opposite, we asked this um, this lady on, on, on the um, Monday Kickstarters, we said, so is the problem that this person wants an apology or is the problem the situation? What are we trying to name it? And she paused and breathed and she got really curious. She says, the problem is I don't know what to do. And so we focused on, I don't know what to do. So we didn't focus on the, giving that person the apology out or the situation, but she focused on the problem. I don't know what to do. The positive opposite is I know what to do. Um. And then the frame we landed on was creating respectful, productive conversations in the workplace and generative questions. So you can read about this situation on the blog. Um, as, as Sherry said, 
when she was talking about widen the screen, widen the view, the importance of really naming what's the problem we really want to address here. Mm. Yeah. How often do we go off solving the wrong problem? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I think the other thing um, that's important is some people are fearful of naming something uh, if they're if they're in a culture that doesn't welcome challenges to right. situations. And so creating an environment that makes it safe for someone to say, we really need to deal with this issue and having the response be, oh my goodness, you are absolutely right. Let's name it. But presumably, actually, you can use exactly the same approach if you find yourself in a culture that won't allow for constructive feedback. So again, you can use appreciative inquiry to say, well, I did it once and it worked, but normally I can't. So what was going on in that situation where actually it did work and I felt I was allowed to do it, able to do it, as opposed to these other times? Could you use it to challenge a culture like that? Absolutely. There's a chapter in your book about whole system conversations. And I was fascinated by this because one of our roles or part of our role as internal comms people is to try and get conversations going across teams, across departments, sometimes across an entire organisation. I just wonder if you've had any experience of this, any insight into trying to make a conversation with many people work. There are any number of ways of doing that in like scaling whole systems with appreciative inquiry. And this is actually where appreciative inquiry began and what the frame for it was for probably 20 years, which was on um, whole system engagement following something called the 4D process. And that was having conversations to discover the best of what is, or just like you just mentioned, when when have I been able to do this? When was I at my best? And what did I value about myself and other people in the organizations? What conditions made that possible? Because if we can find those moments of positive deviance in an organization, we can spread them. And then the, the second D in this 4D process with appreciative inquiry is to dream, to imagine what's the future we want. Imagine if these pockets of positive deviance, imagine what it would be like if they were throughout the whole organization. Um, what would we be able to do? What would relations, relationships look like? And so people began to be very concrete in um, how things would be different in the future. And what makes appreciative inquiry at this whole systems level different is that future image is grounded in their experiences of having already done this. They know they can do it. What's stopping them from doing it all the time? It's what are the kinds of conversations do we need to be having? But also, and this third D is design. What do we need to design to make that future come true? How do we change our systems, our structures, our policies, our procedures, the processes we use so that it is natural for us to be, how do we you know, create those conditions across the organization? And then finally, the, fo- the, the final D, which originally was destiny, sometimes <clears throat> deploy, or now is being, the term deploy is, is being used because that in, um, really encompasses taking what we've designed together and putting it into practice. 
And I think what makes the a whole system conversation is not we're all talking together at once, but appreciative inquiry begins with paired interviews. So I might have uh-huh. a whole set of questions and interview you uh, about your stories, your vision of the future, the opportunities you see for creating that future. And everybody in the organization either participates in those interviews over a period of time, or you could bring the whole group together and people go off in pairs. And then when they come back, again, it's not the whole system engaged in the conversation. It's groups of six to eight that look at those interviews and they find the common themes and and that then gets reported out to the whole. So it's this kind of weaving of whole system back into these small conversations. And it's conversations that are worth having for the organization. Wow. That's like qualitative research on steroids. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. No, I would just add one sentence that people really commit to that which they've been invited to engage around in design. Yes. When we feel that we've had input, when we've been listened Mm -hmm. to, when when our voice has been heard, absolutely. But Discover Dream Design Deploy strikes me as a fantastic framework for any change initiative, any change program. It's really flexible. In your book, you explain how important it is to be in the right state of mind. And there's a quote that I loved in your book, our resting body mindset lies beneath the surface of present awareness. This means we're at the mercy of subconscious drivers such as judgment, assumptions, biases, and low blood sugar, (laughs) which I think, Sherry, you mentioned earlier on. So just tell us what needs to be happening internally first. How can we get ourselves in the right frame of mind? I mean, are there questions we should even be asking ourselves before we ask those other, you know, questions of others? What happens first is I think you know in your mind, your heart, your body aches, you know when you are falling or you're below the line. Um, and if you don't know, if you had a smartwatch on, the smartwatch would probably tell you what your blood pressure was or your heart rate and if it was below the line. And just the tuning in saying just the act of pausing and breathing gets you back up to that line and beyond that line. And Sherry talked about that earlier, how important that is to pause and breathe. And then you can become curious and ask yourself you know, where am I? I, I feel, I'm starting to feel better. And why am I here? And how did I get here? And it could be as simple as you said, I didn't drink enough water. I didn't get enough sleep. And then you begin to ask yourself, you know, what's going on here? What am I making up? All right, what are the facts? Mm. Um, and And might I need to ask for a do-over? Or what triggered these reactions so I can be very aware? So these are the kind of questions you can ask yourself to get you in that place in that space above the line, which is appreciative. And remember, appreciative is, I value you, Katie. I value the situation. And we're going to add value to the situation. And then you just Mm. keep going from there. If I could add one other quick thing to that, and this goes back to the, is it, is pause, breathe, get curious, kind of a warm fuzzy. And the science, the science behind it, when you pause, it interrupts where the nervous system is going or where it is. And then when you take deep breaths, it actually stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. 
So it begins to slow down that stressful biochemical response. It slows down the dump of cortisol and testosterone in the system. And once that slows down, that begins to change your body chemistry. And as we talked about, when, when you slow down those hormones and neurochemicals that create fight or flight, you get greater access to the, the whole of your brain. And curiosity is a positive emotion. If you can get curious, it automatically means you have access to creativity and higher order thinking. How important is checking you are understanding someone correctly? People can use certain words and then you wonder around the choice of that word. And you think, is that significant, that word? Or they just pulled that word out of thin air. And then you have to stop and you have to say, when you use that word, what do you actually mean by it? And I, I find myself doing that. And I don't know if it's annoying to people or not, but it's that checking that you truly understand. That must be such an important part, I'm guessing, of this whole process. Yeah, language is key. So if you think of appreciative inquiry and there's the first principle social construction, David Cooperator reminds us our words create our world. So our words are creating that moment and they're beginning to define that next moment. So language is so important and it's socially constructed and we have to understand when somebody mentions a word, how do you see it and how do I see it and how do we see it? It just builds another layer and level of understanding, as you say. We'll flip over to those quick fire questions, if you don't mind. If you could go back in time, what careers advice would you give your younger self? So my daughter is my younger self, and she's 22. And I said to her this morning, I said, find your passion and purpose. Take time. I said, you have the rest of your life to work. And you're only working if it feels like work. So I think I would tell, you know, adventure is leaving your comfort zone and get very, very curious. Don't let anybody put a damper on your curiosity. I like it. Sherry? I would give myself two pieces of information. One would be don't figure it out. Don't feel like you have to know. But instead, follow your curiosity um, follow your intuition um, and really s stay curious that uh, it's okay to, to be figuring out because you are creating your future. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think a lot of people think that they have to measure their value in, and certainly in the eyes of stakeholders in knowing the answer. And, and I don't know what that's about. I don't know whether that's about the... Um, the stereotypical, often male role models that's created of people that are all seeing and all knowing and at the click of a finger have the answer. But actually, you know, it's actually quite okay not to have the answer, but to be confident enough just to be asking the questions to get to it. I think that's really powerful. Thank you. And I think this goes back also to leaders using conversations worth having. We're all mostly uncomfortable when we don't know. To be able to be comfortable knowing is a wonderful skill to develop, that it's, it's okay to not know. But I, my guess is biologically that is very unsettling for us. 
it kind of probably creates low-level stress. Um, uh, and so anything we can do to make that into a, a, a benefit instead of a stressor would be helpful. As well as your book, of course, what other book or any other resource would you recommend we should all read to become better conversationalists? Still my top right now. Mine changes depending upon what I've been reading. But my top <laughs> one right now still is Adam Grant's Think Again. Um, it's a wonderful correlate to using the two practices and that notion of staying open. And that's why I let Sherry go first, because um, I might have said that one, too. Um, and, and, and Sherry's a ferocious reader. So I'm going to tell you two books, if I can, really quick, that Sherry has reminded me to read. Um, and the first one is Carol Dwight's Mindset. You, you can take anybody, especially the people that are underserved or people have stereotypes, and you can take anybody and help them have a growth mindset to achieve that what they wish to achieve. And I think Think Again is great. The other one is a classic. It's called The Four Agreements. And The Four Agreements, every agreement ties, in my opinion, to what we're saying in conversations worth having. Ah. Oh. Thank you for that. Can you complete this sentence? World-class conversations are going to change the world. Oh, I was just going to throw in the subtitle of the book. They're worth having and they can feel productive and meaningful engagement that can create environments that work for all. And Sherry's right. It's more than a game changer. It's a life changer. It can be such a life changer. Finally, we give you a, a billboard for millions to see, and you can put on that billboard any message you like. What message would you like to put on your billboard? Since we are each humankind, be the kindest human possible. Oh, very nice thought. And I would say your greatest power is in your conversations. Please use them to be a conversational change agent. Ladies, thank you so much for appearing on the Internal Comms podcast. It's been a great pleasure. Um, your questions are wonderful and it's been a wonderful joy to be here. Thank you, Katie. What you do, your communications podcast, they're the heart of how people interact. So that is a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. For the show notes and the full transcript, head over to our website, abcom.co.uk forward slash podcast. If you did enjoy this episode, I'd be extremely grateful if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would just help other IC pros out there find our show. We still have some great guests lined up in this season, including two well-known figures in the IC world from either side of the Atlantic. We have Victoria Dew and Martin Flegg. So you may want to hit that subscribe button today. All that remains is to say a special thank you. Thank you for choosing the show and especially to those who reach out to me to say how much you're enjoying it on LinkedIn and Twitter. I do try to respond to every comment. And thanks to you, lovely, lovely listeners. This week, we reached the milestone of more than 100,000 downloads of the show, which is truly awesome. 
So until we meet again, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.